You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now present the Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Health Hub. I'm Kathy Biasa, your host, and along with our producer, Alex Diaz, we would like to welcome you to our show this morning. Good morning, Alex. Good morning, Kathy. How are you doing? I'm well. How are you? Not too bad. Pretty good. Just powering through on a couple of things, but uh, all is well. Please do follow us on our social sites. We are on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. We are at the Health Hub RMC in all three locations. We're constantly giving you updates on our upcoming shows, show guests, some tips, health tips, and so forth, and uh, just all in all, a feel-good uh, place to come. Uh, and please do feel free to email us at thh at radiomaria.ca if you have um, questions you'd like to pose to us, show guests, any show topics we all always welcome, and we do our best to try and make you happy. And please do subscribe to our podcast. We are the Health Hub on iTunes, SoundCloud, and all your favorite podcast platforms. And you can also find our podcast on the Radio Maria Canada website, which is radiomaria.ca, and on my website, which is kathybiasse.com. So today our show topic is surrounding um, suicide. And I just want to give you, from a Canadian perspective, some hard facts that come from our our government site, Canada.ca. Approximately 11 people die by suicide each day, which, uh, if you do the math, works out to just over 4,000 deaths by suicide a year. About one-third of the deaths by suicide are among people 45 to 59 years of age. That may come as a surprise to a lot of people. I know we do focus a lot on suicide in our youth, um, but there is a a definite pattern um, for people in this age group. And suicide is the second leading cause of death among our youth and young adults aged 15 to 34. Suicide, this is one that I was uh, a little bit surprised at. Suicide rates are approximately three times higher among men compared to women. So maybe some of the ideas we had about suicide may be um, a little bit different when you hear these numbers. And if we continue to dig deeper and look uh, to those who have had suicidal thoughts and who have planned out or attempted suicide, the numbers are still more sobering. Approximately 11.8% of people question reported thoughts of suicide in their lifetime. Uh, that number to me was very, very high. Uh, people who have planned suicide, so have gone beyond the thought to planning, is about 4%. And of that 4%, 3.1% reported having made uh, an attempt to take their own life. This is a serious health subject, and um, this health issue that we're going to be talking about, mental health, suicide, deserves our attention, and not just because of the numbers and the statistics that I read off to you, but perhaps because our current approach and thought processes and attempts at dealing with suicide, we may be missing the mark. There may be something more involved here. And to that end, we have a wonderful guest, Dr. James Greenblatt. He is a pioneer in the field of integrative medicine and has treated patients since 1988. After receiving his medical medical degree and completing his psychiatry residency at George Washington University, Dr. Greenblatt completed completed a fellowship in child and adolescent psychiatry at John Hopkins Medical School. He currently serves as the chief medical officer at Walden Behavioral Care in Waltham, Um, Massachusetts, and serves as an assistant clinical professor of psychiatry at Tufts University School of Medicine and Dartmouth College Geisel School of Medicine. 
Dr. Greenblatt has lectured internationally on the scientific evidence for nutritional interventions in psychiatry and mental illness. He is the author of seven books, including Finally Focused, The Breakthrough Natural Treatment Plan for ADHD. He is the founder of Psychiatry Redefined, an educational platform dedicated to the transformation of psychiatry, which offers online CME-approved courses, webinars, and fellowships for professionals for professionals about functional and integrative medicine for mental illness. This will be an extremely informative and uh, an important show, and it's something that I hold dear to my heart. Uh, mental illness in all spaces is something that needs to be discussed more openly. And I think conversations like the one we're about to have are very, very relevant. So please do stay tuned. We will be back shortly to talk to Dr. Greenblatt.
You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program, The Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi. Welcome back, everybody. Please do follow us on our social sites. We are on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and we are at The Health Hub RMC on all three locations. Dr. Greenblatt, I'd like to welcome you to our show. Such an important topic, and I, I greatly appreciate you taking the time to be with us today. Uh, thank you, Kathy. My pleasure. How did you get into this area of mental health? Is this your, your primary work or is this um, a passion that you've come into recently? Uh, no, actually, I went to medical school 40 years ago, you know, interested in nutrition and, and brain function. And that was um, why I wanted to be a doctor and ended up coming out, you know, nine years later as a child psychiatrist prescribing medications uh, and, you know, it was only a couple years of traditional psychiatry where I was able to get back to kind of the roots and what drove me and motivated me. And so for 35 years, I've been both researching and training doctors and how to understand how nutrition affects um, mental health and mental illness. So I'm thinking 40 years ago, as a man going into the profession of psychiatry with a, a focus on nutrition, you were a bit out in left field to most of your colleagues? Um, to most, we, we had a few and we actually set up, a, a, I remember an elective in the medical school called the evolution of the biomedical model, where we brought in speakers on acupuncture and nutrition, uh, but it was an afternoon, you know, club versus, um, anything that was integrated in the curriculum, but there were always a few and, um, you know, the, the interest and the research has just grown now where it's established although clinically it's still lagging uh, behind what we know as uh, good science. Mm -hmm. Now, this is in the area of mental health proper. Um, have you seen a strong move? We, you know, we tend to think that functional integrative medicine is something that's more of a, a newer field. Obviously, it's not. What has really grabbed a hold of uh, doctors in your profession to make them, you know, make their eyes open to the fact that something's missing in treatment? Well, I think a, a number of, of things. One is um, many of my colleagues um, had illnesses themselves, weren't helped by a traditional uh, doctor, went to a functional integrative physician and their aches and pains or illnesses uh, resolved. And so they started thinking about their profession. And, and the other is kind of the growing research base, uh, particularly around um, genetics, epigenetics, and, you know, things like the gut microbiome has taken the academic psychiatric community, you know, by storm. And so there's some things that are kind of well accepted, and people are interested in, Although what's most frustrating for me, there's some simple concepts like nutrient deficiencies that still has really not penetrated traditional psychiatric models. And I think sometimes the answer is because it's too simple mm -hmm. and it doesn't really fit the paradigm of medications and pharmaceuticals as the core treatment for mental illness. Do you find that in the area of mental health, you know, we, we see a lot more systemic um, integrative functional medicine sort of below the shoulder area. Do you find that uh, the mental health area is late to the party? Absolutely. Um, you know, one of the terms I keep using is, you know, psychiatrists, you know, forget there's a neck, you know, connecting the body to the brain that, you know, if our thyroid is off, if we're have any inflammatory illness, any other nutrient um, physiological process in the body, it affects the brain. And yes, psychiatry has lagged behind some of the changes in terms of lifestyle and prevention that we now talk about with cardiology and even oncology. Um, you, you talk about the black box warning. Um, this is probably a term that's, well, it's new to me and, and might be a term that's new to a lot of, of our listeners. And it's, it's more in association um, with antidepressant medications. Can you explain um, what the term is and how you have sort of worked this into the way you focus on your practice? Uh, sure. The, the black box warning is, um, 
is what the FDA would put on any medicine where there's a serious contraindication. So, and in my world of psychiatry, there is a black box warning on antidepressants. And the warning is these medications can contribute to suicidal ideation. And as a traditional psychiatrist, uh, patients are presenting to us, whether it's in a hospital or in our office, depressed and suicidal. We have to share with the patient or the parent that we're handing them a medication that has a black box warning, uh, which is the strongest the FDA could give, that says that it could increase suicidal ideation. And it, so it's a very awkward situation that's often ignored. And, and one area of work that I've been involved in for many years is looking at kind of medical biomarkers for suicide prevention and not understanding the relationship that antidepressants actually can contribute to suicidal ideation has really been a tragedy. Now, it's not everybody, um, but it's important that we understand it. And it kind of, kind of intersects with my work with nutritional deficiencies affecting mood. And we've found uh, those individuals that are deficient in certain nutrients have much higher rates of the suicidal ideation with these antidepressant medications. So you definitely integrate medications into your practice. This is not a, a you know, a stand against medication. Um, what's interesting, and, you know, it goes beyond the field of mental health, many medications impact nutrient absorption, they, they can have an impact on and, and decrease um, nutrient, well, it, the likelihood of nutrient deficiencies. And genetics we have in there too. So are these the two fields that you're focusing on? If you need to put somebody on an antidepressant or on a medication, are you looking to certain functional tests pre-prescription or in, in correlation with the, the, um, the dissemination of the medication? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, um, you know, I wish it was cookbook. I wish it was simple. Now, the brain is complicated and, and mental treatment is complicated. And I have colleagues who are just in this hardcore psychopharm, you know, camp. And, and if one medicine doesn't work, you had two, three, four, and, and patients are coming in on five. And then other colleagues are just starting that same list of supplements, you know, give vitamin B12 and 5-HTP and take vitamin D. And, and our work is really in the middle. It, it's a functional medicine model, means we're looking at root causes and it's an integrative model. So we want to do testing to make sure there's not anemia or thyroid problems or B12 deficiency before we would start a medicine. And if we do start a medicine, we want to make sure there's no side effects, um, whether it's uh, decreased libido, weight gain, or suicidal ideation. So medicine can be incredibly helpful for those struggling with mental illness, but it needs to be kind of monitored and integrated with a very um, kind of aggressive nutritional, uh, personalized nutritional plan based on some of the routine testing I discussed. Are you seeing a rise in the rate of suicide? Well, it's been dramatic over the past 30 years across all age groups, younger ages. Um, you know, I just had a 14 year old girl from our hospital uh, took a serious overdose and was in the ICU. We didn't see 14 year olds um, overdose 10 years ago. So younger age of onsets increase 30%, some age groups 660 to 100%. And it's across the globe. That's pretty uh, dramatic. And a, a public health problem that I don't think we're addressing um, in the manner that we need to. From your perspective, from a, a, an MD, as well as a functional practitioner, is it a cohort of all different reasons or are you able to, are, are you pulling from your research and clinical practice some underlying factors that you're perpetually seeing? Yeah, I think that for years we've known the risk factors, um, but 
in those 20 or 30 years, we've known the risk factors um, and treated those, the rates have continued to skyrocket. So whatever we're doing, it's not working. And those risk factors might be treating depression. So we have these depression screening. We have more medicines. It is, you know, histories of, of substance abuse, of, of loss, of trauma, uh, all, all of those kind of psychosocial risk factors. What I've been frustrated about is nobody is really addressing the biological risk factors, those biomarkers that differentiate those that become depressed, become distraught, and, and, and out of despair, think about taking their lives. But there's a subset that actually have the, uh, the lack of impulse control and the ability to just take that gun or jump. And I believe those are biomarkers that we now have available to us. And that research has been around for 30 years. I believe it's been ignored. What is the big focus that you are working on now. Now we're talking about the health of the brain, uh, trauma, whether it's a physical trauma or mental trauma, we know now from a functional perspective, it impacts the whole body. Um, a straight line is to the gut microbiome. And then we know the gut microbiome, if that's impacted, it can lead to inflammation. Are you using this sort of circular um, event in the body as uh, one of the basis that you're treating? Um, depression and uh, suicidal intentions? You know, absolutely. There are many roads to inflammation and, and the research is quite clear. Any path increases suicide risk. So it could be a head injury, trauma to the brain, concussions, traumatic brain injury, three to four times increased risk of suicide. It could be early trauma as a child creating chronic inflammation. It could be sleep deprivation inflammation. This is the first year that the traditional psychiatric community, American Psychiatric Association, put a, a full chapter on sleep in their suicide um, assessment and treatment manual. So sleep deprivation and then infections, whether it's COVID or Lyme, chronic infection. So we could go on and on with nutritional deficiency that affect inflammatory markers. And we know those individuals with inflammatory, higher inflammatory markers, much higher risk for suicide. Which leads to a, re a really s a good avenue that we can introduce functional medicine from. Um, and I want to just go back to the brain trauma because concussions and the awareness now of long-term effects of concussions, this too is, is just recent. Um, recent within, you know, the scope of science that we've come to appreciate the long-term impact of concussions. If you are a person who has had a concussion, or if you're the parent of a child, you know, that's been involved in sports or, um, you know, has, has fallen, these are not, you know, born with a mental health issue. These are a, a physical issue that's come. Are there risk factors or are you, you know, when you've come from a place that, you know, your child, your child has had concussions, um, are there risk factors that you should be looking out for either personally or as a parent? Uh, sure. I mean, I think the, the research is, is pretty overwhelming and substantial that the, the head injury um, leads to inflammatory uh, markers that increase risk for depression and suicide. So we'd want to address those inflammatory markers, and we can do that with, with nutrients. Um, and and the, the, the most important ones that I've seen is um, lithium. So we have this nutritional lithium, not pharmaceutical lithium. Lithium has been shown to decrease inflammation um, in head trauma and traumatic brain injury. Um, Omega-3s, there's a good research and many individuals looking at high dose omega-3s, which can help um, after a head injury. And, and I use things like uh, magnesium and a class of phytochemicals called OPCs, all are uh, profound um, antioxidants uh, in the brain. So we can address the consequences of a head injury by decreasing inflammation, by decreasing oxidative stress uh, as soon as possible. And I think the models are pretty um, 
both logical and has been have been shown to be helpful. Is there there can be considerable lag between um, a concussion, a head injury, and um, the outward display of uh, mental health issues? Can there, or is it is it pretty soon after? No, no, it, it could be many years. I mean, I think that the process, you know, really varies as to the the course of the illness. And if it's a slow inflammatory process, it could be a, a long time. And again, it, it's on top of potentially a genetic uh, vulnerability mm-hmm. to depression or anxiety. Uh, there are many kind of roads that, that intersect when we're looking at some of these um, environmental insults. Do you do genetic testing on some of your patients? Uh, yeah, I routinely do genetic testing on all of our patients. I, I think um, the cost is an issue for some, but there are some genes, uh, the, the MTHFR that looks at folate metabolism, I think it's very hard to practice psychiatry without understanding that risk factor. And, and then if possible, there are other genes that can help um, either address uh, other nutrients that someone might need um, larger amounts and or adjusting medications. This is sort of a newer area for a lot of people, um, understanding their, their genetic makeup uh, with respect to the functioning of nutrient absorption, um, detoxification. So it must be quite an educational piece you're giving uh, your patients as well. Yeah, I think some of it is, if there's a word, you know, de-educate, because I think the, 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 you know, Google and the internet oversimplifies and people get very either excited or upset that they have this genetic you know, polymorphism, and they can't take this matter, they shouldn't do this. And it, it's just not that simple. And um, I think the, uh, the growth of this concept of genetic testing is really still in its infancy of how it affects clinical practice. But I'm convinced there are some genes that really direct the course of treatment and can improve the course of treatment. I think, um, what you bring to the table and what is so valuable, especially in this space of mental health, is this uh, hope. Um, you know, I, I work with some people as well when I'm working with cancer patients that have um, real issues um, because of, of depression, because of worry. And I think when you can speak to physiological and genetic makeups and give them a path that this can be addressed, that has to give the patients you're working with so much empowerment. And that must in itself push your treatments along. You know, absolutely very important as, uh, again, as humans, uh, social beings, you know, the therapeutic alliance is important. And if we can instill hope in our patients, um, particularly in the field of psychiatry, it is frustrating uh, for so many patients to be just given uh, different pills that never quite address some of the underlying um, health issues. I think a sense of control is also at play here. And, you know, with, with, um, people like you practicing in this way, I I can't help but be hopeful that um, the trends that we've seen over the last while will will be turned around. Um, I think we're going to take a quick break here and we're going to come back and talk, uh, continue our conversation here with Dr. Greenblatt. They say sometimes you win some Sometimes you lose some And right now, right now I'm losing bad Stood on this stage night after night Reminding the broken it'll be alright But right now, oh right now I just can't It's easy to sing when there's nothing to bring me down. But what will I say when I'm held to the flame like I am right now? I know you're able and I know you can save through the fire with your mighty hand, but even 
They say it only takes a little faith to move a mountain. Well, good thing a little faith is all I have right now. God, when you choose to leave mountains unmovable, oh, give me the strength to be able to sing. You are listening to The Health Hub, here on Radio Maria Canada, a Catholic voice wherever you are. To contact us and be a part of the show, email thh at radiomaria.ca. We now continue with the program. Here once again is your host, Kathy Biasi. Welcome back, everybody. We are talking with Dr. James Greenblatt. We're going to continue our conversation on this very important uh, topic Dr. Greenblatt, um, one of the areas that you addressed, I've read a, a couple of blogs and one that really um, got me going, got my, my attention anyways, was your association and the, the connections or lack of connections between uh, cholesterol and mental health. And I think this cholesterol and cholesterol management, this is, again, this is one of these topics that seems to me to be picking up speed, and especially in this space of mental health. And could you explain to us what is the connection of cholesterol and brain health and association to mental health? Sure. I mean, I think um, we can start with just the um, one of the largest um groups of most profitable groups of medications, the statins, which lower cholesterol. And, and these medicines now have a FDA warning that there are cognitive side effects. It can affect the brain if the cholesterol levels go too low. And those side effects typically are, are memory um, related. But the work that I've been most involved in is, you know, uncovering a subset of individuals that have what we call very low cholesterol. And these are cholesterol numbers, you know, under 140 total cholesterol and, and normal is 175. And 
these individuals, it has nothing to do with diet. Many of these are young adults who are eating a lot of fat and junk food, but there's likely a genetic defect in, in uh, cholesterol synthesis. And we have 30, 40 years of research that those individuals that have the lowest cholesterol have the highest risk for suicide. And, and it's actually aggressive suicide. So these are impulsive, aggressive individuals. And again, it's not one paper or 10 paper. There's probably 50 to 100 research papers going back 30 years looking at this relationship. And I see it in, in my hospital. The, I work in an inpatient psychiatric hospital and I admit patients that came in for violent suicide attempts and they might have total cholesterols of under 100. We've seen 60, 70, you know, 100. And th these are dramatically low, unrelated to diet. Interesting. Now, to play devil's advocate here, um, could the use of statin medication, you know, when we're talking about heart health, uh, the overriding challenge or the, the call to action is to drive cholesterol down. Um, I think, again, as, as I stated earlier, I think the knowledge of the importance of cholesterol and maybe revisiting some of these numbers seems to be echoing in the background. Do you see any association with the dramatic rise in the use of statin medications and the increase in suicide? Uh, I haven't because I believe that these are separate groups, um, but I, I don't have any research to support it. I believe the statins bring cholesterol down um, to, to numbers around 140. And most doctors say, fine, the lower, the better. They have no concept of low cholesterol. And what I've seen in the office over years is either their spouse bringing them in or family members. And these individuals are depressed, uh, lack of motivation and, and memory issues. It is not the same group, um, very low cholesterol, um, due to, I believe, genetic reasons that are much higher risk at suicide. It almost sounds like some of the symptomology of Alzheimer's disease. <laughs> Absolutely, yes. Um, you know, explain to us what the function of cholesterol is in the brain. Maybe we should, you know, make a framework around this so people understand why driving cholesterol or having very, very low cholesterols is detrimental to mental health. Well, I mean, we could go on for hours, but th this molecule, this fat that we've kind of bemoaned, you know, for 40, 50 years now is this evil um, chemical. You know, the, first of all, cholesterol makes every steroid hormone in the body. There are hundreds, but the big ones we all know of, estrogen, testosterone, pregnenolone, progesterone. I mean, those are all made from cholesterol. How about vitamin D? So you make vitamin D from cholesterol when sun hits the cholesterol molecules in the skin. And then in the brain, cholesterol stabilizes the, the membranes in, in the brain. So um, neurotransmitters like serotonin function optimally. Other neurotransmitters like oxytocin, um, which is kind of our social bonding chemical. Those are all directly related to um, cholesterol. So it has essential functions across all of human physiology. And another one that comes up uh, is vitamin D. You mentioned vitamin D in passing and the omega-3s, but vitamin D seems to be important for every single aspect of health. How does it relate to brain health? Well, I mean, I think over the years it's got uh, ignored because we, you know, we focused on bone, then we jumped to cancer, and now we have great literature on COVID. Um, but the mental health literature is just as strong, and I don't know how any psychiatrist could practice without looking at a vitamin D level. Vitamin D is a rate-limiting step in the synthesis of serotonin. You can't make serotonin without adequate vitamin D. And, and we have studies looking at depression, looking at dementia and Alzheimer's. And, you know, my recent work is, is suicide. So the military has done studies, other countries have looked at studies, the lower levels of vitamin D, the higher risk for suicide. It is simple and really tragic that it's not a routine test 
that psychiatrists are looking at to support a preventative model of mental health. And the, the last sort of supplement that we talked about before we get into more socioeconomic issues is lithium. Now that's, it's um, uh, talking off air. I don't know if we can get that in a supplement at all in Canada here. What, why is this, why not, number one? What is the, are there dangers with lithium? And um, further to that question, how are you seeing such huge benefits by microdosing it? Yeah, lithium, uh, first of all, is a, is a natural mineral in the soil in every drink of water. If you drink from a tap, would have some lithium. So it's in the earth. It's been, um, been in the earth since the Big Bang 13 billion years ago. And it's essential for brain function. Somewhere between one to three um, milligrams is what we get every day in our diet. And um, what... We have demonstrated uh, since the 80s around the world, actually, in um, many, many countries, is that the levels of lithium in the drinking water, in your tap water, can predict suicide rates in a certain community. And, and uh, again, this has been done off and on for these 40 years. And in 2020, there were three major studies that um, looked and confirmed the same relationship and whether it's Greece, Japan, the US, um, England, uh, different states in the US, I think there are 13 or 14 different uh, countries and they've all demonstrated the same thing. The amount of lithium in the drinking water, micro dosages will affect suicide risk. And then if we jump all the way to pharmaceuticals, we've also established that individuals who take prescription lithium have decreased suicide rates. That is a well-researched academic fact. Nobody would argue with it. Bipolar patients who take lithium, lower suicide. If you're not on lithium, higher suicide rates. So we know microdoses help and we know these pharmaceutical doses. And my work has been in, in the nutritional supplement world, dosages that you take as a supplement from one to five milligrams and it is the most significant intervention that I use in my practice. We use it for mood, irritability, impulse control, and, and decreasing suicidal risk. Lithium has been shown to decrease suicide. And again, we have to do everything we can to support that model. Well, what is the fear of taking too, too much. It sounds like, you know, the, the microdosing and the fact that I, I don't think it's readily available. Um, is there a fear of, of, if you take too much of it, is it, is it going to be tragic? Well, pharmaceutical dosages and the numbers are important, 1200, 1800 milligrams um, does have side effects and can affect the kidney and the thyroid. The microdosages, again, which might be in somebody's water supply, I have not seen uh, side effects um, in, in using this for 30 years. Um, and there's none that's been reported. I think that, you know, there are many countries, the US and other countries around the world where you can buy lithium over the counter. Um, other countries, you know, you can't without a prescription. But I see the low dose, you know, one to 10 milligrams not having any side effects there's no blood level and it is um, has benefits both for what well, we're talking about suicide prevention, but there's growing literature in the academic world about its effect on prevention of dementia and Alzheimer's. Is this something that you can, so you just said it's, there are no blood levels, so it's not a blood test, but can you test for this level? Is this, you know, vitamin D is in the blood. We have to test so we don't overdo it um, or under, under have it. Um, how do you know if someone, if you want to put someone on lithium? Well, I mean, some of it's based on clinical symptoms. Um, some of it's family history and the work that we've done. And what I've learned over the years is those individuals with family histories of bipolar or substance abuse or suicide, those individuals, um, I believe, have, have a higher need for lithium. And then we can do um, a trace mineral hair analysis. So hmm. we can look at levels of lithium in the hair. 
most people would have lithium in the hair. And there's a subset of individuals that we're finding with undetectable lithium. And sometimes that can guide our, our treatment. But, but again, don't forget that our psychiatrist colleagues without any testing, someone who's depressed and suicidal might put them on lithium, three, six, nine, 1200 milligrams to prevent suicide. And what uh, I'm uh, talking about, and we're actually putting together an international conference in April on this topic, is can we use low-dose lithium to achieve the same benefit? Or as a preventative. Correct. If you're, if you're seeing um, um, genetics coming out where you see possibility, um, you know, a trend in the genetics, or if concussions come into play, um, this could be a preventative. Absolutely. When we look at a, a functional psychiatry model, prevention is really the goal. And, and psychiatry, like most of medicine, it's not really focused on prevention because there's no money in it. But uh, that would be the goal here is do we understand risk factors, um, psychological, cultural, environmental, as well as these biomarkers, and then treat them before the onset of the symptoms. Well, therein lies the problem, right? I mean, you could be living a, a happy life and have a trauma, have uh, a pandemic, have uh, a loss of, uh, you know, a loved one that can trigger um, a mental health um, issue. Where do, where does functional psychiatry come into this, the socioeconomic, the, the, the poor population where we are seeing more uh, rates of suicide? How are they interwoven when you're not dealing with an underlying, or maybe you are, but in, in, in some cases not dealing with an underlying propensity towards a mental health issue? Yeah, I think it's, it's always critical that we kind of balance in our heads this kind of genetic environmental, you know, dance, if you will. So let's say we have a, a, a tragedy in our lives, a pandemic with the loss of a loved one. There's grief and there's stress. And there might be a family of five that are, that are dealing with the grief and that loss. But one of those individuals might have a particularly genetic polymorphism for you know, folate uh, deficiency or B12. And that individual could, course of illness could go from a depression and grief to something more significant and increase inflammatory markers and increase risk for suicide. So I think even though we have an outside environmental stressor that we always have to kind of dig deeper um, and see if there's some biomarkers um, that would place that individual at higher risk for a more significant um, downward spiral. And I think often we can predict that. It's amazing. And uh, again, just something that you touched upon the, earlier, the first half of the show that I want to uh, bring up again, the importance of sleep. And sleep has been a challenge for a lot of people um, over the last year. It's been a tough year for everybody. How does sleep impact um, our mental health? Well, I mean, I hope the good news is it's getting more both research and, and press. And I, I think it's, um, you know, up there with exercise, maybe even more so um, that the, the quantity and quality of our sleep um, uh, affects every um, major psychiatric illness. And one of the uh, variables is sleep deprivation uh, causes inflammation, which exacerbates every mental illness. So it is probably the single most important lifestyle thing that one can do. I might throw it even above exercise um, as we get more and more research, but it is a, a lifestyle intervention where whatever it takes um, in terms of supporting sleep will help the underlying um, symptoms of mental illness. Are you doing any type of clinics or group work where you're educating people on things like this? Is this part of a, of a plan that you have or a, a therapy? Yeah, most of our work and my work or my life now is focused on um, a, our educational platform, Psychiatry Redefined. So it's um, psychiatryredefined.org. 
and and we are teaching clinicians, um, you know, functional psychiatry. So there are courses, and there's a longer trainings and fellowships, ADHD intensive. So we have um, cover most of the major mental illnesses, looking at these underlying metabolic, biochemical, and nutritional um, deficiencies. Are you are you seeing patients still, or are you totally moved into the educational space? I'm consulting with physicians. I'm not taking mm-hmm. on new patients, but I'm working in, with you know, consultation with physicians around the, their patients. Now, if people are interested in finding out more about functional integrative uh, work in the psychiatric field, is your website someplace that they can look at for information like that? Or do you refer out to other people? Yeah, I think the website psychiatrydefined.org or mine, James Greenblatt, MD, has a lot of information. There are practitioners um, who are taking new patients listed um, on the website in uh, various areas around the country. Well, I want to thank you so much for joining us. It's such an important topic to discuss. And I think the more practitioners like yourself are are putting the health, the mental health space uh, into the functional and, and into the hands of individuals where they can understand that they have control, they have pathways. And again, Um, just by talking and giving people, equipping them with questions to ask, I think is so vitally important. And I think with people like you, um, the the future of mental health is is very bright. So I really appreciate you taking the time to be with us, um, Dr. Greenblatt. Thank you so much for being on our show. Uh, My pleasure, Kathy. Take care and keep up the good work. Thank you very much. And everybody, we will talk to you next week on The Health Hub. Listening to The Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi, here on Radio Maria Canada.